Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we're on the subject of baptism. The notes, if you want to follow along, are in your bulletin or on your app, rather, and you can find the notes if you find that to be helpful. Uh, Whenever I do sermons like this, I I feel like I need to remind you that sometimes preaching is, is a time of exhortation, and other times preaching takes on much more of that teaching uh, aspect, and that's going to be one of those today. Last week, we began to deal with the issue of baptism, and, and the reason for it is what's found in Acts chapter 2. Let me get there myself. Acts chapter 2. Um, where at the end of Peter's sermon, people were baptized. And in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now this is the key. And Peter said in verse 38, Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, for the promise for you and your, for the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So in there you have some elements that create a lot of discussion and differences of opinion. So you have the repentance, that's fine. Nobody really struggles over that. And then you have the baptism. People seem to have no problem with the idea of baptism. But you have it then in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so some say, oh, they've changed now, and now we're only to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Second, it says, for the forgiveness of sins. And so that, that then leads people in one way or the other to begin to think that baptism brings forgiveness of sin. Then it says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then we have people who say, in the baptism, you should also receive the gift of the Spirit, more in the charismatic sense of the word, that ecstatic type where you hear tongues or, or something like that. And then finally, these promises are for you and your children. So the baptism is not just for you, but for your children, hence infant baptism. So whether you knew it or not, it's one of those passages that is very complex, not because it's complex, but because it's made complex. And so my job as pastor is to demystify, if you will, it and help you understand what is going on. When we deal with the subject of baptism, views range from baptism actually removing sin all the way to the other side of it being a symbol, the symbolic only, which is the position of Missio Dei Fellowship. 
Now, between those two extremes are various ways that baptism sets a person apart as a Christian. So within those, in some way, shape, or form, people, when they talk about baptism, sees it as something happening where you're being set apart as a Christian, or at least as a part of what's known as the visible church. Now, let me explain that very quickly if you're not comfortable with the idea of the visible church. When we talk about the church, especially when we look at it in the Bible or we're talking about it together, the church can take on different meanings or senses, if you will. There's the local church, which is simply a local representation of the visible church. This church is a local church, and it's a local representation of the visible church. It's not the only church. The visible church would then be much bigger. The visible church is um, all who claim to believe in Jesus Christ and are therefore part of the church. They can be Christian or non-Christian, and they and it's now encompassing the whole world. So at any given moment in time, anyone claiming to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, they're part of what's known as a visible church. They may be a Christian, they may not be, but they're part of what's known as a visible church because we cannot tell on our own. Then there's another idea called the universal church. The universal church is made up of all actual Christians across time. So the visible church is looking at the church that you can see at any given moment, all right? Like right now, we take a snapshot, and anyone claiming to be a Christian anywhere in the world, that's the visible church. They may be Christians, they may not, but they're part of the church in that sense. The universal church spans time. Anyone who is a genuine Christian is part of that church. So Paul is and was part of the church, and we are part of the church if we are a Christian. The local church is a church, but it's never the church, if you can follow the difference. It is a church, but it's never the church. So when we're dealing with baptism, what we're dealing with is In one way, the baptism is an entranceway into the visible church. Some will argue that it's also an entrance into the universal church, meaning genuinely saved. And so we need to work all of that stuff out, whether you know it or not, we need to work all of that stuff out. And we need to clarify that because within our little town of Kenosha, there is a diverse level of understanding and arguments. And you're going to, if you are going to encounter people that have different positions and it matters, it matters in major ways. Maybe not to you, but once you start to talk to other people, you will discover that there is a diverse level of understanding and senses with regard to baptism. And so it's my task to teach you on that. Again, it's no small thing, and we can't just brush it aside casually. I want to assure you that whether or not you believe me, it is worth your time to understand. Gone, beloved, are the days. Gone are the days where the American Christian can just vaguely worship. The battle lines are being drawn, and we're we're, we're on a path, and we need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe that. No longer can you just simply say, well, I believe sort of, kind of, vaguely. It doesn't really matter. It is rapidly coming to a time where you need 
to know why you believe and what you believe. Now, the differences with baptism are not so much in the mode, meaning the way you do it, through immersion, through sprinkling, right? That's not the issue. More, much more important will be always the why. What is the reason that you're being baptized? And therefore, I pressed hard last week on a few key points that if you and I can agree on these, now we can have a dialogue. One of the biggest challenges whenever you're trying to have a discussion about theology is can we agree on certain basic principles? If we can't agree on these things, then, beloved, all you would ever do is talk past one another. And you probably have all involved, had that happen to you in one way or the other. If you can't agree on certain foundational points, then simply you say your thing and they say their thing and we just go about our business. This is how a lot of those debates when you have a person with a Calvinist and an Arminian or you have a, a Mormon and a Christian uh, you know, pastor and they're having a debate. They can talk all day long, but really all they're doing is talking past each other because they don't agree on the foundational issues of what is absolutely authoritative and things like that. So I I argued last week that the first thing we need to accept is the authority of the Bible. That unless the Bible is our authority and only the Bible, then we have nothing we can do. Many will appeal to this, but truly their authority actually will be found to lie within their catechism, their creed, their confession, or the church's tradition. Now, it's very easy to appeal to the Bible as your authority at the same time, but then it also matters how you go about interpreting your Bible. How do you deal with it? How do you understand the Bible? And so I gave some very basic pointers on that that are helpful in interpretation. The second thing that I said that we have to accept if we're going to have a decent conversation on baptism is we are dead in our sins. The scripture says that explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2, that all are born and they are dead in their trespasses and sins. All of us, from the day of birth onward, are under the wrath of God. All of us are under his judgment. We are dead in our sins. We do not sin and thus make us a sinner. Rather, it's the opposite. We are sinners. We are born sinners, and therefore we sin. So Psalm 51 says that David was brought forth in iniquity or sin. So until you understand that the smallest child, as sweet as they might be, at their very core is not good or innocent, but in fact a sinner, then baptism will not make a lot of sense to you. And this is why it's important that you understand what's going on in some of the traditions with regard to baptism. The third thing I said that we must embrace is salvation is by grace through faith alone. One, because the Bible is our authority and that's what it declares. Two, it is the only way of hope because we are dead in our sins. It's not that we're sick or we're kind of dead, but that we are totally unable to respond to the gospel and the good news of salvation unless the grace of God comes to us. Very important to accept and for the most part, people in various denominations will accept that. They, they understand grace is very important. But when you deal with the subject of baptism, this idea of grace 
becomes very muddled, very vague. And I want to try to bring this out in this short series. I want to show you how when we talk about grace, we say one thing, but when we talk about baptism, we seem oftentimes to contradict what we're talking about when we're talking about grace. Are we saved by grace alone? Grace means that salvation is utterly unearned, that it is freely given by God, meaning not that he just gives it away for free. That's not the idea. It means that he is not compelled by any external force to do something. Meaning, uh, in a simplistic way, if you flip switch A, B, and C, then God has to save you. That's not grace. And that's how we kind of think salvation works, is that somehow if we do this, this, and this, then God has to do this. That's not what grace means. God greatly, great, freely, sorry, freely bestows this upon us because of what his, his son Christ did for us on the cross. Faith means that we must believe and rest in those promises, but it is the instrument, never the means. Faith is never the means of salvation, it is the instrument that brings us into salvation. It is always by grace alone. Now again, none of you, if you're a member of this church, should disagree with that. However, when we talk about baptism, you will be amazed at times how muddled that really gets. So with that in mind, what we're going to do today is we're going to deal with two common perspectives that we don't hold to here that are common with baptism. They're the sacramental perspective and the covenantal perspective. And I, it's my job to try to make this interesting, so we'll try Now, before we do that, I think it would be worthwhile for us to talk about something that is also a bit muddled in a lot of our minds. We talk about the Reformation, and some of you know a lot about that, and some of you know next to nothing, or this is the first time you've ever heard it. But in 1517, that is basically when it's accepted that it began. Martin Luther, a monk, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, he nailed these questions to the door of the local Catholic Church, his 95 theses. They're just simply questions, and people always think that he did that in an act of rebellion. No, actually, the doors of the church were the bulletin board of the day, and that's where you would hang uh, notices and let people understand things. He had honest questions that he wanted to open up for discussion within the Catholic Church that he found that were contradictory to what he was seeing in the Word. And what happened there was it set into motion things that he never imagined that were simply huge. Now, there are many points to the Reformation, and we could spend months studying that, but at the core was two things. First, how is a person saved? How does a man or woman become saved from their sin and from the wrath of God? Is it by faith? Is it by works? Or is it by a combination of faith and works? And then the second thing is very closely tied to this. It is, where does our authority rest? Where does our authority for doctrine rest? Does it, and where do we find truth? Is it found in the word of God or is it found in the church and its traditions? Now, often, though, we forget that the Reformation was first 
Now, you need to hear this. It was first designed to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Luther saw that it was in serious error. It was never intended, in other words, for Luther to leave the Catholic Church. That was not his desire. His desire was to simply bring reformation to it. He saw that it had gone astray, that it was teaching things that were wrong, and so he sought to bring it back into conformity to what the Word of God said. And so the key reformers of uh, Martin Luther, Zwingli, or John Calvin, they were tightly connected to the Roman Catholic Church at one point. In fact, Luther and Zwingli were both priests, and Luther, I mean uh, Calvin, though he wasn't a priest, was raised in an extremely staunch and faithful Roman Catholic household. Now, out of these men rose two streams of the Reformation, because ultimately the Roman Catholic Church rejected their efforts. And when they rejected their efforts, then it forced them to separate from the Catholic Church. And out of that came two streams that we still see today. The first stream is Lutheran, and the second is what we call Reformed, with a big R. So you have the Lutheran stream and the reform stream. And they really developed because of their locale, where they were at. The Lutheran stream started in Germany and spread from there. And, and then the other uh, was Vingley and Calvin went from Switzerland. Okay, so understand that because of their locale and the politics, it's so complex in a neat way, but it's very complex. Understand that that's how these two streams of thought developed. But here's what I always find interesting is we often miss out in appreciating a third stream that started up there as well, and they are known as the poor Anabaptists. Anabaptists just simply means to be rebaptized or baptized again. Now, this group was made up of a very diverse number of people, and some of them flat out were whack jobs. All right, these guys were just crazy. Um, and when you're reading church history, a lot of times what you'll find is when the author is dealing with the Anabaptists, they will glom onto those whack jobs and then try to paint the whole movement as if it was all crazy people. The reality, though, is that it was a very diverse loose-knit group. It was not a, a singular group centered around one man like Martin Luther or John Calvin. It was simply that once the Word of God uh, became available to individuals and people could have their own Bible for the first time and they could begin to read it in their language, they started to look at it and compare what it was saying to what they're seeing in their churches. And they're like, this doesn't fit. And they started to think for themselves. And again, some of them just went off the deep end, but many of these were very, very faithful men. The challenge, though, is that they were also harshly persecuted by the Reformers. So the Lutherans and the Reformed were killing these men right and left because of their views with regard to baptism. So... They argued, oh, by the way, if you don't know who these people are, uh, you can still see remnants of them in the Amish and the Mennonites. Uh, Menno Simons was uh, probably one of the best 
of the Anabaptists, a very careful theologian and a very godly man. And out of that rose the Mennonites. Now, baptism was seen by them to be only for those who had been who had come to faith, who had made a conscious profession, conscious profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so they looked because in their day, and you, again, it's, we, we don't have anything today that compares to that time. So it's hard for us to get our heads around it. But you would be in a little tiny village, and when you're, you had a baby, you, part of what you had to do was take the baby down to the church to be baptized. And the moment that the baby was baptized, that baby is now treated as either a Christian or as a part of the visible church. And if you withheld that, it was, it was horrid. It, 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 it was not just a religious idea like us where you can have your religious faith and then your social life. They were one and the same. And so when you chose not to baptize your baby, what you were essentially doing was upending the social norms and peace. And so the, the authorities, since they were the authority functioned both as in the church and in the society, they would punish that and they would punish it most severely through imprisonment, through torture, and often through death. And so there are all these people who had been baptized as babies. Now they're coming to read the Bible and they're starting to decide, no, that's not the right way And so they would then go and be baptized again, hence the name Anabaptist. And they were now being baptized because they wanted to be one who was known that I am baptized because I have already believed Jesus rather than the other way around. Now, this may not mean much to you, but it flipped the world upside down in its day. It's helpful to realize also, I would think, that the Lutheran Reformed Positions never fully broke from the Roman Catholic Church. Don't read too much into that statement. But you do need to understand that they never completely broke free. And so you'll see remnants of the Roman Catholic Church traditions within both streams to varying degrees. Now, what's important is that they both broke away on the key issue of the gospel. How does one become saved? How does one become a genuine Christian? That they broke away from. They understood that the Bible taught salvation by grace through faith alone, and it was wholly a work of God, all unearned by us. But what happens in things like the Lord's Supper or in the baptism, they line much more up with the Catholic tradition rather than simply Scripture. And you're going to find then when you read their writings on baptism that in fact they don't appeal to scripture as much as they do appeal to tradition. And that's because of that connection back with the Roman Catholic Church. So in an effort to explain this maybe in a helpful way, picture a grand old house that started out pretty basic and then over the centuries, people just kept on adding to it, right? Kind of like an old farmhouse and you got a little room over here and a, a, a add-on over there and, and they don't always get them connected to the main house as good as they should have and so the transitions to them are a little clunky and whatnot. And then picture the Reformation comes about and what they basically are doing is ripping out the guts. They're ripping out the plumbing and the electrical and and those key aspects of the house. And they're just saying, no, we need to fix this. And they, they put in brand new guts 
but they keep the basically the structure of the house to one degree or another st- still the same. So you still have these clumsy rooms. You have a room within the room. You have a hallway that kind of is like, I'm not sure why they built that hallway, but we got a hallway there, and that's kind of cool because it's different. That would be the Reformers. The Anabaptists had a different attitude. They just said, level the whole thing. Just knock the whole baby down, and let's start all over. And that's really what was going on. So for them, it was, you know what? It's going to take us too much time to just figure out what stays and what goes. And, and then we're going to have fights about, well, it looks neat, and it's fun, and what's wrong with it? You, you know how all that would go if, if you bought an old house. Well, it's the same way within the church. And so they, it was just easier in their mind to just knock the whole thing down and start fresh. Well, you can imagine, again, how much that would upset the society and the norms of the day. So with that in mind... When we talk about baptism, we cannot merely look at it impartially like we think we can. We're not able to look at it without emotion like we would if we were studying the life cycle of a goat. You know, it's like, well, this is how it works. You're dealing with something that's very, very precious and very important in the lives of countless individuals. There's a whole lot of stuff that gets attached to it. And and how you decide on these things sends you in specific directions, whether you knew it or not. So with that, let me give you the two common views on baptism, neither of which this church holds to. The first is what's known as the sacramental perspective. In this perspective, certain things convey grace, hence the word sacrament. They convey grace. They have an effect upon the person. This grace in some way or another is used in your salvation. Now, again, depending on how you describe this, it's, it literally makes you saved or it helps you grow in your salvation. But in some way or another, when we're talking sacramental, we're talking about something where in these, uh, in the, in this act, things are conveyed to you that's called grace by God. The most extreme view of this would be the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would teach that saving grace, saving grace is given through their various sacraments. Each one will help a person, if they're faithful in them, get to heaven, if you will. And so there's seven of them. You have baptism, you have confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, marriage, and holy orders, which is becoming a nun or a priest. Now, the last two, you don't have to do. You don't have to be married. You don't have to take on the holy orders. But the others, you must do. They are indispensable to your salvation. If you do not properly partake of these, you cannot be saved. So when we talk about baptism, the Roman Catholic Church will teach that baptism is self-sufficient in itself. In other words, the simple act of baptism, the simple act of baptizing an infant, that work itself conveys saving grace. So you don't have to believe. The priest doesn't have to believe. Most certainly the baby doesn't have to believe. All you got to do is have someone present who baptizes the the baby in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they now are saved. Now, The Bible shows absolutely no warrant for that. 
at all. In fact, we would argue that attacks the very foundation of what it means to be saved by grace through faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church would argue that that rite of baptism saves the child. They now become a child of God, and they will always be a child of God. Even if they end up in hell, they will still be a child of God just in hell. So get your head around that too. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not making that up. You are literally, it's a one-time event, and when you are baptized, you are now made a child of God, and you will always be a child of God, whether you're in heaven or not. Millions, I would say, go to the grave, literally heading into hell simply because they have trusted that they were baptized as a baby, and therefore they're in, they're saved. It's very interesting to note that the Roman Catholic Church actually will accept any baptism as long as it was done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As long as you have the triune uh, formula stated at the time of baptism, it doesn't matter who baptized you or where you're baptized, they will accept you into their church and they won't require you to be baptized now as a Catholic. So that's the most extreme. The Lutheran, Martin Luther, is a variation on that. And I have to be careful here um, because when I was debating this with a, a brother in Christ who was a Lutheran, um, I realized I didn't know my Lutheran theology like I thought I did. And so I ended up having to invest a lot of money in Lutheran theology books and sitting down and reading them so that I could be faithful to understand exactly what the guy was saying. And then I found out that I knew more Lutheran theology than he did, which was kind of fun, because then he started studying more too. And it was actually a kind of a neat experience as we debated these things over the years. But the Lutheran Church teaches a variation on that idea of what the Roman Catholic Church. They would say that God does import, impart saving grace to the child and that at the time of baptism as an infant, there is a remission or removal of sin. However, they would not say that it was the water or the act of baptism that saved them, but that in obedience to baptizing your baby, that, the, that, that God imparts faith into the child. So what is happening is at the baptism, the baby now believes the gospel, even though they can't state that because they're a baby. Now, sometimes they say that it's not the faith of the parent, but it's the faith of I mean, the faith of the child, but that it's the faith of the parent. But usually, in some way or another, God imparts faith to the baby, and the baby is now saved in baptism. So he's given that faith. So in Romans 6, if you want to turn there, um, this is a key passage for them. We'll actually look at the Bible finally. <laughs> so... In Romans 6, verses 1 through 11, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin be still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been, and here's the key word, baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to Christ. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that passage is very important to their view because they say that this shows that baptism is much more than a symbol, but in fact, it is a uniting you with Christ in his death and resurrection. That as you are, that, that just as Christ was baptized in death, that he entered death and then rose from the grave, the act of baptism unites you now with Christ, that you are now in Christ, which is something Paul loves to talk about and describe. And to be in Christ means you're a believer. And so verses three and four, they, they say it unites us to Christ, and it's something that we will look at a bit more, well, actually a lot more carefully in, in another week or so. Also, in the Lutheran church, they would argue there are two groups to be baptized. And this was something I had a, a dinner with a, a pastor who was a Lutheran pastor, a Wells pastor in our town. He's no longer here, but he was here. And I inquired of this. I just wanted to verify and clarify a few things because I was confused. And, and I said, so do you just take an adult and baptize them? And they're now in the church and united to Christ. And he said, absolutely not. He says, no, if you're an adult, you must first believe. Which I, I'm sure I gave him a funny look, but... He's like, you have to believe, and then you would be baptized in an adult. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, in our passage, it says that, so those who received the word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. So these were all adults. They were no infants in there. That's, they would agree with that. This is just people uh, who are capable of making that conscious decision. I believe in Jesus Christ, and therefore I will be baptized. Uh, you see it again in chapter 8, verse 36, uh, Acts eight thirty-six to 38. This is the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip preaches the gospel to him. He preaches Jesus in verse 35. And so along the way, uh, in verse 36, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so they baptized. And so there again would be an example of an adult being baptized. They would agree with that. And so we, and so we, I agreed with them and they agreed with me. The only point we didn't agree with was how we would put you all the way under water and they would just sprinkle water. The second group, though, 
that they hold to that we would not is that, that of infants. And I would argue that this is nothing more than a holdover from tradition and Catholicism. But they would argue that the New Testament teaches that infants were to be baptized. So if you're an adult, meaning you're something old enough that you can comprehend and state things uh, with understanding, you must first state your faith, then get baptized. But if you're an infant, your first step is be baptized. And when you're baptized, the faith comes from the father into the child, and now they believe the gospel. So it's, it's flipped completely around. Now they argue though that New Testament does teach that infants were baptized. And the way they do that by, if you just go to chapter 11, verse 14 of Acts, I'll just give this one. And I have others that you can look at, but they all say the same thing. Um, they argue that it's built into the phrase about the households. So Acts eleven fourteen. It says, and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so what what they argue is that all your household idea, that must, at least in some situations, involve babies, and therefore babies are able to be saved. And the way you're going to be saved is by going to Romans 6, and Romans 6 says that you're united with Christ in your baptism. Are you... Tracking? Yes? No? Or have I just bored the pants off you? I Honestly, yes? I need nods or no. Okay. Um, so you got it. I mean, I'm trying to make this make sense to you. It's, so you got this verse over here, passage in Romans 6, and you got these household verses over here, and they're like, okay, so how does the household, we're going to assume there's babies, how do they get Saved? Well, because baptism unites them with Christ. So an adult has to believe Jesus in Jesus, and then they'll be baptized. A baby can't believe, or a baby can't express those things with his mouth yet, so God just gives them the faith when they're baptized. This is harder work up here than you realize. Um, Now... The Lutheran theologian is aware of some apparent inconsistencies with that. They're very much aware of the how that how then are we justified, declared righteous by faith alone. And so they deal with it in two ways. Well, one of two ways, depending on who you're talking to. The first is that the faith is an unconscious faith. It does not require reasoning or thinking. It's just simply a gift that God gives. So they, they, they frequently will take you to a passage like Matthew 18, 6 that says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Christ is referring to these little ones and they're saying these are babies and they believe. And so, therefore, babies can believe. Other passage that they would tend to go with is uh, where John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. You, you may remember that when Matt was preaching on that, that literally the baby leapt with joy when he came and uh, when Mary came in, uh, into his proximity. And so they say, see, he can be filled with this Holy Spirit in the mother's womb. Then why can't a baby believe? We'll talk about that. 
Um, another way of dealing with it, though, is that the, it's the parent's faith, not the baby's. When the child is baptized, so the baby later develops his own faith, but he's still a believer at that time. All right, so that's one main view. Very quickly, we'll deal with the other main view that called the covenantalist. The covenantalist view is the Reformed or Presbyterian view. And for this group, the whole issue centers around their theology, and that's important to understand. Um, their theological system demands this. It's called covenant theology. Um, how many are actually, how many are, have heard of covenant theology? I'm really interested to see your hand. So about a third. Okay. How many have never heard the phrase covenant theology? Look, that's impossible. <laughs> All of you who didn't raise your hand had to have raised. <laughs> I give up. You're all going to hell. No, you're not. No. <laughs> I did. I, I just. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> okay. Well, those of you who raised your hand the second time, thank you. And the ones who didn't raise either time, I don't know. Are you asleep or what? Covenant theology is a very complex system. Um, in fact, I literally have just read three books on it over the last couple of weeks, uh, just continuing to want to understand and appreciate it because it has a constant influence on our church. Um, this is a Reformed view, though, okay? For them, baptism is not what brings you into salvation. What it does is it makes you now part of the covenant. You become part of the covenant people of God. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll remember that Abraham, that one of the things that his offspring had to do is be circumcised, the males. On the eighth day, they had to be circumcised, and that was one of the key parts of becoming an Israelite, that every male Israelite on the eighth day would be circumcised, and that was the seal or the sign that they were part of God's covenant people. Now, some of them were ultimately true believers, and many of them, in fact, were not true believers, but they all carried that sign of God's covenant with them. Now, the old covenant was under Moses, and the new covenant is under Christ, but they're really the same covenant. You have to understand that, and I, 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 I'm not joking. I have read thousands of pages of covenant theology, and I'm still not seeing how they can do this, but they do, is that you have these biblical covenants. You have the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, the Mosaic one, the one with Abraham, the one with David, the new covenant. These are all covenants the Bible talks about, but they, all, they say they're not different covenants. They're actually one covenant, and it's called the covenant of grace. And so because they hold that all of these different covenants are actually one covenant, they have this idea of continuity between them, where they're all interacting with each other. And so the old covenant was with Moses, the new covenant is with Christ, but they both carry a sign. The sign of the old covenant was circumcision. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. It's just the New, Co new Testament sign that you are now a covenant child of the covenant. And so when you become part of the new covenant, there's blessings that are related to it, that they're very tightly connected to being saved, but they would never say you are saved. 
This is, again, where it can get complex. So many of you really like uh, Doug Wilson. I've enjoyed Doug Wilson in various ways. Um, But you don't know, a lot of you don't really understand anything about Doug Wilson. He He holds to a very unique form of covenant theology called federal vision. And I won't even bother to try to get you to get your head around that. But when you hear Doug Wilson, he is being very faithful to his theology. So Rachel Jankovich, who many of you like to listen to, uh, she's a sharp lady. She's his daughter. She is pushing a covenantal view on everything, and it's a unique form of a covenantal view, and you don't know that she's doing that. And so she did one where she did a video about how in their theology, they raise their children to be believers, and that Baptists, like us, raise our children to be unbelievers. And the reason for that is her theology, is that the child is baptized uh, as, a, as an infant, and from that day forward, they will treat their child as if they are a Christian. And that's just the way it is. So they would say that the baptism doesn't make you saved, But at the same time, they'd say that baptism means you are saved. And you're like, how? And they can, they do that. And they, they say, we deny this, but we affirm this. We deny this, we affirm this. And as you're watching that, you're like, wow, that, the space between those is really skinny and it's hard to discern. So for them, the baptism is very important. They would never say that it, it conveys you now it unites you with Christ and now you're saved. But in some way you are treated as if you are saved. Maybe that's the best way to say it. So the baby takes on this sign that they're now part of the new covenant and they're raised up as if they are a Christian. Now they later have to appropriate that by faith. But, but you would never find a Presbyterian telling their child, you need to trust in Jesus, like you were saying to your children, because they're assuming they have trusted Jesus. They just don't know where it was. And after, if, if let's say at 16, the child then actually believes the gospel and says, mom and dad, I never believed this, but I believe this now, they would never be baptized again because they're already carrying the sign of the covenant. My confusing you or... (sighs) Okay, so those are the two big ones that go on in the city of Kenosha and its surrounding environs. It's the two big ones that go on in all of the world. The Anglican Church or Episcopalian, the Methodist Church, all of these different groups, they practice one or the other uh, in in some way. And so what we want to do is I want to now show you, not now, but in the upcoming weeks, what does the Bible just simply say about it rather than what does our tradition and our history and our uh, creeds and confessions say? So it's just a big confusing mess, beloved, and, and that's why it's hard. I will try to tie it together. I want to give you a positive understanding But I want you to understand that when we talk about baptism, if that is the basis for any man or woman in this room, that you think you're now in Christ or you're saved, you have held on to a false gospel. You have held on to something that cannot save you. Baptism is never designed to convey salvation to you. Baptism is a symbol. It is a sign. 
of something that has already occurred by God in your heart, where he has conveyed to you a regenerating work of the spirit where you're made alive and you now rest through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who is your substitute on the cross. He took your place. He took your place in death. He took your sin and he paid the price for it. In his resurrection, he defeated death, which is the enemy you cannot. And he alone is the defeater of death. And what the Bible says is that when you believe, you are now united in Christ and his death becomes your death. His life becomes your life. And now you are saved. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're adopted into the household of God. All things now become new. But it's not because of a baptism. It it is because simply you have trusted in Christ alone. And so this is not a small thing. It is a big thing. And for many of you, as you go out and you make friends and you're talking about your faith, the issue of baptism is going to come up. And you need to be prepared to give an answer. You need to understand why you go to this church and not to the Catholic church or not to a Lutheran church. There are reasons for it. And you need to decide, do I believe these things or not? But we want to make certain that you understand this is what Missio Dei stands for. And this is where we will go no further. We will not budge on things such as this. So with that, let me pray. Father, I do ask that you would cause the people to consider, especially some of them who have come from different traditions and and to think about the way that things were explained or taught. I pray, Father, that we would go home with a spirit of humility, recognizing that, again, sometimes we treat things casually and lightly, and yet blood was shed over this very issue. Many brothers and sisters were killed, and many brothers and sisters desired others to be killed because of this issue of baptism. Help us then to be faithful, faithful and wise and humble, that we would engage people to talk to them, but also not leap to conclusions. I pray for grace upon our church, that all of us would love the gospel all the more each day, I ask you for your mercies in your son's holy name. Amen.